Okay. Okay, and welcome to episode 10 of the Guru Performance We Do Science podcast. So this is the 10th episode, so I'm promising you all an extra special episode, which of course I promise every time. And uh, today what I have for you, or who I have for you, is Jose Antonio, Dr. Jose Antonio, CEO of the International Society for Sports Nutrition, and also a professor of exercise and sports science at Nova Southeastern University in Florida. Hi, Joey. Hey, how you doing? I'm uh, I'm enjoying the super duper hot weather here in South Florida, so uh, ah, you um, know I'm what? ready for to once, go. <laughs> for once, I'm not in cold, dark, and gloomy London. It's also hot and sunny here. So, uh, although of course <laughs> uh, I was out in Florida a few weeks back with you guys at the International ISSN Conference, and uh, man, that was just to plug the ISSN Conference. All you listeners, if you ever get the opportunity, you got to go. I mean, th- what we had was academic conference. Um, about 30 feet from a beautiful sandy beach. (laughs) It was an awesome experience between breaks just to step out on the beach. I absolutely loved it. So uh, Yeah, and and, and you know what? Before you go on, I want to mention next year, you're going to be in Austin, Texas. Austin, Texas. Yeah, and I'll be there for sure. So um, I'm looking forward to attending that. So uh, obviously you and I have known each other for uh, quite a few years. I got involved with the ISSN uh, six years ago or something now when I was living in the states and uh um you know it's been a pleasure to be involved with you it's been um just an incredible opportunity for me to uh, meet you personally and also uh, all of your amazing uh, colleagues at ISSN and and also the obviously subsequently now the development of the ISSN deployment which we have sort of a, as a global ISSN phenomenon uh, which I'm pleased to have headed up and and uh, an institute. So it's um, it's it's been pretty awesome there. Well, thank you. Yeah, and in fact, I wanted to mention that you know one of the keys with the ISSN is the uh, is the fact that you know you you were actually one of several people who talked about putting together you know videos mm. of of these different uh, uh, sports nutrition experts in the world. And you were the only one out of all these people who talked about to actually pull it off. And I think it's been amazing. And it, it really will help us reach people who otherwise would never come to our conference. I mean, people in Abu Dhabi, people in Singapore. Yeah. I mean, they'll get exposed to some of the best experts in the world. Yeah, no, that, I, I think that's cool. And, and, you know, as we were speaking off air a while ago, there are literally people in everywhere, you know, from buses on, on their way to middle of nowhere in Australia or Hong Kong, China, Venezuela, obviously UK, Canada, Ireland, all over the United States, everywhere. These people are watching our lecture videos of geeks like you and me talking about you know, <laughs> exactly. nutrition stuff and presenting research where they just wouldn't have the opportunity uh, uh, to attend you know, necessarily that, that event um, and or get access to experts from all over the world. I mean, you know, as well as the great guys at ISSN in the States, we've got many of my colleagues over here in the UK from all the top UK universities are also lecturing on the program and we video their lectures as part of our event. And it's just incredible with the ability that we have with technology that we can bring sports sports nutrition science uh, to pretty much anywhere that has a you know an internet connection, it's uh, it's awesome, and and of course that's now being developed into postgraduate degree programs and all kinds of cool stuff. And 
that's the cool thing about this podcast is there are people listening to us right now who are stuck in traffic uh you know uh benefiting from being stuck in a traffic jam and actually learning some stuff rather than just shouting at people or maybe doing both yeah. maybe shouting yes, at you I and love me. It. yeah modern technology yeah all right well look let's uh enough of the enough of the banter there let's jump straight in then so i know you're currently publishing uh in lots of different areas and uh, and have done for many years of course uh but there's a couple of topics i wanted to get into and i know you're sort of a a master of many topics and I particularly enjoy your blend of science with real world application and that's really what I wanted to take advantage of in this podcast today is uh, bringing the rocket science out of the atmosphere and stratosphere and keeping it firmly on the ground. Um, so let's first get into some stuff you've been um, working on and you, I know you've just published a study on protein overfeeding so t tell us about how that came about. Yeah, the protein overfeeding study, what's, what's interesting about this is that, um, I mean, going back to when I was an undergrad, I remember my professor saying, uh, you know, if you eat too much protein or really too many calories, uh, more than you use, certainly you'll gain weight. And I've heard that ad nausea, you know, for the last, you know, 20, 30 years. And um, when you go through the literature, what's interesting is when you look at, quote, overfeeding studies, none of them actually overfeed on protein. Yeah. which is odd because in our category, working with athletes and bodybuilders and things like that, that's exactly what they overfeed on, is protein. And so it really became more of a practical question. And, and you know, for me, my background, for, for people who aren't familiar, my PhD, you know, I did my PhD actually in cell biology. I looked at, a, you know, a skeletal muscle fiber hyperplasia using animal models. But in the back of my mind, I always knew that ultimately you have to translate all of these things so that it applies to humans. And to me, the protein overfeeding was like a perfect example of, wow, why didn't anyone do this before? Why didn't they get a group of uh, resistance trained uh, men and women and just say, hey, we need you to consume this amount of protein. And so we undertook this with the idea that we weren't, we were not only going to make sure they consumed a high protein diet, we want to make sure that it was a very high protein diet. So for instance, in the bodybuilding world, typically you're told, eat about a gram of protein per pound of body weight for people who don't follow, you know, the, the old English system, you know, something like, you know, one and a half to 2.2 grams per kilo of protein. Yeah. And I thought, you know what, how about this? Let's do a study where we double it. I mean, literally double it to something like 4.4 grams per kilo. And these were super highly motivated, uh, resistance trained, uh, men and women a lot of them were actually collegiate athletes, so these were this this was a very well trained group, and they were very very strict in terms of how much they ate. In fact, a lot of them were my students, and I'd ask them. I said, "So you know, how are you hitting your protein needs?" And they literally they said, "Literally, we have to force feed ourselves." Mm. They said, "If if we had to do this in food, it would be vi virtually impossible because you literally would have to eat all day." And I've had friends who. They don't eat that much protein, certainly not 4.4 grams per kilo, but just to get 2 to 3 grams per kilo. They say, look, if I'm going to get this through food, my mouth is going to be tired from chewing. i got to get this through shake. So for the most part, everyone got the extra protein uh, from whey protein shakes. And it amounted to roughly, you know, in, in total, an extra 600 to 800 calories a day for two months. And... You know, it's one of those studies where it's like, you know, let's do it. Let's see what happens. I mean, I don't know what will happen. Maybe they will get fat. Who yeah. knows? I mean, no one's done it. Now, the caveat or the kicker was 
that we made sure that each individual did not change their training because I didn't want training to be superimposed on eating uh, so that if there were any effects, we know it was simply purely from eating more protein and more calories. So they didn't change their training. So for eight weeks, they didn't change their training. And the bottom line net results were, uh, you know, in terms of the group averages, there was no change in body weight, no change in muscle mass, no change in percent body fat, no change in fat mass. In sort of this odd way, it was a study that found that nothing happened but precisely because nothing happened, people were really up in arms. They're like, whoa, wait a minute. Yeah. You can't feed them all that food and calories and nothing happens. I'm like, look, I, I don't really care whether something happens. I'm just telling you what the data shows. And, yeah. and, and that, again, is based on group averages. Now, let me tell you this. When you, look at, when you look at individual data points, and this is where it gets fascinating, you know, I would say maybe there was a trend for the high-protein group to maybe gain some lean mass and lose some fat mass. But because... You know, our sample size was about 30, 30 subjects, about 10 dropped out because they couldn't eat that much protein. Um, so the trend was there, but, you know, when you're looking at it from purely statistical significance, there, nothing happened. So it did, it did prove one point, or, you know, I guess, you know, scientists, they can't use the word prove because, you know, they get, they get all in stitches about it. Um, it did show that if you overfeed on protein, primary, and particularly whey protein, that in general, nothing will happen if you're a well-trained person and you're not changing how you train, if you're just doing the same thing over and over. The kicker is you don't get fat either. So people are like, well, where are all these calories going? Well, hey, let's say this. I'm sure a big part of it is the thermic effect of feeding because protein does have a very high thermic effect. And maybe the other part is you know, what people refer to as NEAT, N-E-A-T, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. Maybe people who eat that much, protein particularly, just tend to move a little bit more. And it's, it's sort of that movement that's not exercise movement per se. Maybe it's fidgeting. Maybe they tend to walk more. Maybe they just tend to do other things more. And that, that results in sort of the extra calorie burn. And so, you know, it's, it's funny. This is one of the few studies I've published. Well, I've published a lot of studies that showed nothing. But the one, it's, it's a study that showed nothing happened. But it's the study that, that's gotten the most response. And I'm thinking, wow. A study that showed nothing happened is the one that keeps that seems to piss the most people off, which I found yeah. rather odd. It's kind of ironic, actually. <laughs> yeah. Well. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's plenty of ironies out there. In fact, uh, I've been having this conversation a lot with people lately about this business of, you know, the fact that, uh, all too often, when studies are done and they don't really show anything quote unquote significant they tend to get binned or ignored or they're not accepted for publication because yes what they're what the editors are looking at are like well how many times is this going to get cited is it going to affect our yeah. impact factor blah 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 now as a practitioner i want to know if something doesn't work uh, yes. because that's just as important if not more important um so this business of of get, you know getting all crazy because a study shows something isn't particularly significant is significant in itself um, particularly when you're looking at energy balance and where you're going to get your macros from and you know is too much too much is too little too little in fact um, a few podcasts ago I did a, a podcast all about calories and uh, it's one of my favorite subjects because it's one of those topics that that boy do people get crazy <laughs> Uh, you know, yeah. and the thing about it is, is we don't eat calories; we eat food, and therein yes. lies the issue. And and there's, there really is quite a bit of complexity behind that. And unless you're a 
sort of a rat in a cage or a human being in a 24-hour feeding chamber, you know, it, 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 it's not so easy. And, and that's where thinking of the protein overfeeding thing is, is, is if you're going to overfeed, which so many human beings do, uh, you've got to be damn sure that you're going to overfeed on the right kind of foods yeah. that's not going to result in a negative impact. So that that result that you found in your study is incredibly meaningful. I mean, I, I, obviously, another area, people are, oh, you know, that's just too much protein and so on. Well, yeah, but, you know, you try running these studies. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a difficult thing, and uh, we're actually going to get into that on this podcast, so we'll, I'll save the answer for that one a bit later. But, okay. um, I mean, so the consequences of overfeeding as you found in your study is well kind of nothing's going to happen and at best you're at least mitigating a scenario where they could be overfeeding on carbs they could be overfeeding on on fat which almost certainly would increase body fat levels and <clears throat> other potential metabolic health issues so it's a good strategy to direct people if anything increase your protein intake because that's likely to result in um, beneficial body composition changes and for certain you know worst case scenario nothing really bad's going to happen right yeah you know absolutely and i think i think one of the um, things that get lost with you know people looking at the high protein overfeeding studies that when you do look at the literature on overfeeding it is always on overfeeding on carbs and fat. It's mm. never on overfeeding on protein. Yeah. And in fact, those overfeeding studies, it's, it's funny, one of them uh, <laughs> for the overfeeding, uh, I remember reading the study, I'm like, wow, so they overfed, I think it was uh, either they could choose a Snickers bar, uh, ice cream shake, and I think some sort of you know, high sugar drink. <laughs> I'm thinking, yeah. okay, well, you know, it's sort of the typical junk people like to eat. I guess in a, in a sense, this is more real world because that is what people overfeed on. Absolutely. And what do you know? They got fatter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, no, exactly. Uh, do you know what? I just thought of something which uh, I know some listeners are going to laugh the minute I say this because I've actually had emails and tweets from people saying that my catchphrase is context. But context is absolutely key to this. And and by that, what I'm I'm thinking is, I mean, someone else's idea of high protein is probably my idea of low protein and probably your idea of low protein. So, so uh, I mean, why, why don't you... Let's just get into that a bit because, of course, no one, there's no fixed sort of concept of what high or low protein is. Uh, there's no standardized sort of idea like a calorie, a centimeter. You know, we've got an idea what that means. But when we talk about high protein or low protein, what, what, I mean, what does that actually mean? Actually, well, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because um, I recently uh, uh, gave a talk at a local gymnasium here and I, 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 I I dealt with that specifically because people always ask, well, when does high become high? You know, and also in reference to low carb, but when does a low carb become low carb? What, what happens before it's low carb? Is it moderate carb? So high protein diets, this is the funny part. If you look at the high protein, so, the so-called high protein diet studies, and you look at the, the gram count in terms of total grams these stu subjects have consumed, I put together a graph way back when basically the highest amount I saw was something like 140 grams a day. That was high protein. Hmm. Um, there was one study that actually had people consume roughly two grams per kilo per day for two weeks. And I think that was an endurance training study looking at recovery. So in essence, 
the quote high protein studies that existed before that were were actually not even high. It was I'm thinking, wait, that's what the average bodybuilder eats. I mean, that's what the average. I, if I go to any gym, any university gym in the United States, and and pluck a random guy who lifts weights, they're eating more protein than that already. And I'm thinking, and this is where this a, a sort of a weird disconnect between science and the gym. Mm. It's like, wait a minute, this study is referring to this as a high protein diet or higher protein diet, when in fact. I go to the gym and I talk to these guys who consume 25% more than what you're calling high. So I looked at it and said, wait a minute, that's not high. Let's do what truly is high. And to me, what I've done is I operationally define high protein as anything that exceeds 2.2 grams per kilo or a gram per pound as we do it in the United States. And that's why for the study, I'm like, we got to double this because if we double it, no one can dispute whether it's high because this is friggin' high. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. you know, in yeah. fact, anything over 2.2 grams per kilo is going to be high. Mm. So the existing literature, none of it was high. It, I'll be honest. It's sort of like, well, okay, it was sort of high-ish, but really not high. It was sort of moderate protein. Yeah. Yeah. No. And uh, again, also the type of protein is going to be an issue here because, of course, I mean, even eating one gram per pound from, say, chicken or beef you know, can be a bit of a struggle, particularly for the bigger guys out, you know, the 200 pounders out there, yeah. uh, plus pounders. Um, so, of course, you know, this overfeeding isn't necessarily always achieved by eating, you know, uh, uh, steaks and uh, and chicken breasts. So it's going to be in a more liquid or, or supplement format, isn't it? Like yes. whey, whey protein. And, and uh, so why, I know for many the answer is obvious, but let's just explore quickly why 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 not try and do this Overfeeding with, say, chicken breasts and and steak, and uh, you know, and opt for say whey protein. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's interesting if if because we had subjects. Um, <clears throat> excuse me, we had a lot of subjects who showed interest in this study. And the first thing I told them, I said, before you even think of volunteering for the study, <laughs> I want you to just try to eat that much for a day or two, and and you tell me if it's even doable for you. <clears throat> excuse me, and I would say. 50% of the people who, who would do that for a day, they'd come back and they're like, you know, I can't do this. <coughs> Excuse me. I'm, I'm literally eating all day and it's, it's, it becomes work. It's not even food doesn't even become fun anymore. It becomes work. And certainly they can't get it from chicken breasts or tuna or steak because they'd be eating all day. The, uh, what's funny is everyone always falls back into, the, the, at least the ones who actually can manage it, they fall back into they have to find a pattern where they can consume a shake at certain times of the day, and that was the only way they could hit that protein amount. Otherwise, they said, if, if you told me I could only do this through food, uh, there's no way. It's not even possible at, at that high a level. So, you know, it's yeah. really interesting, I mean, that people, you know, people who thought they could do it, in fact, we had, you know, we had 10 dropouts, and some of these people dropped out like two or three weeks into it, and they all said it's like you know I, I i can't eat this much i can't eat this much it's just too much <laughs> and i said well you know i wish you had told me that you know two or three weeks ago when you volunteered <laughs> so, yeah 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 no i th i think uh it's worth also pointing out because for those that really want to get into the whole protein thing uh a few podcasts ago i had uh professor Stu phillips and professor kevin tipton and we had a wonderful very informative and educational <coughs> podcast all about protein so listeners can check out everything that was said about that but of course you know there can be there can be issues of course with 
over-consuming protein. And, and uh, my take on this is you're not recommending that people consume the amount of protein that, that you did in the study. You, you were just seeing, well, what happens if, if we try this, right? Yes, absolutely. I'm not recommending uh, that you consume you know, 4.4 grams per kilo of protein. As, as you mentioned, the whole purpose of that study was just to see, hey, let's see what happens. I mean, what happens when well-trained guys and girls actually consume this much? It was one of those sort of pure outcome-based studies. Let's do this. Let's do ABC and see if we get DEF or XYZ. And, sure. and that's purely what it was. In fact, so people say, okay, well, if you don't recommend that, what would you recommend? And I say, for the average, you know, strength power athlete or even endurance athlete, I'd say get at least two to, you know, two and a half grams per kilo of protein. It's going to help you recover. If you're bodybuilding, you know, I, I know, I, I don't know if it's Stu Phillips or others who, 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 who say that as you get more, as you get better trained, you actually become more efficient at utilizing protein and perhaps you may not need as much protein. Sure. Unfortunately, there's no studies to actually look at changes in fat-free mass with eating a lot of protein. I mean, the, the ideal study is to get, you know, guys and girls who lift weights, have them consume like two to three grams of protein per kilogram body weight daily, and then, and then see if they get hypertrophy. Yeah. And it's, um, no one's done that. No one's yeah. done that. I mean, all of these acute studies that show changes in muscle protein synthesis, I mean, they're nice and all. I yeah. think they're interesting mechanistically, but... Ultimately, you still have to measure fat-free mass or lean body mass to see if something has the effect it has. Yeah, of course. And, and it's a very individual thing. And, and to be pragmatic about this, you do have to consider the practicality of it, uh, but also the overall you know, goals and outcomes of the individual. And if you're looking to improve body composition, which involves changing the things that influence their cravings and... Uh, other situations that might result in them not achieving a favorable body composition, and, and by that I'm, I'm focusing more on the body fat issue than the muscle mass, then overfeeding on protein has its benefits because um, of the additional impacts, like you mentioned earlier, uh, sorry, offline actually, uh, we, when we got in, when we attempted to record this from the beginning, um, <laughs> is the uh, thermic effect of protein, of course, and the whole uh, neat uh, effect, but of course its impact on satiety, you know, the whole hormonal response and the impact that has on leptin and greenin and so on, uh, you know, may result in that person craving less. Whereas, yes, you may in theory hit that person's protein needs for muscle protein synthesis, you're, you're getting the, the leucine threshold, you're doing all that stuff, but they're still getting cravings uh, for other foods and the consequences of those cravings is they're overfeeding on uh, carbs or fats. So over consuming a little bit extra protein may not be necessary for muscle protein synthesis, but it might well be necessary for health or body composition purposes when we look at the bigger bigger picture. And that's where I feel your study comes in useful. It's not a suggestion you need to eat that much, but eating more than say one gram um, per pound uh, isn't necessarily a bad idea. You just got to look at my favorite word, the context of, of how we're going to apply this. So um, you you mentioned, of course, uh, that you're now um, doing a, a, a follow-on study from that. So tell us a little bit about that. Yes, uh, the follow-up study actually will take into account that, um, number one, it is extremely difficult, extremely difficult for people to eat that much protein, the 4.4 grams per kilo. So what we're actually going to do is dial it back to something like 
2.5 to 3 grams per kilo, which is still a, a high protein diet, mm. and it's a lot more manageable. People could actually do that without, you know, uh, it them feeling it. They have to be a professional eater to actually accomplish it. So we're going to dial back the dose, and on top of that, we are going to impose a, a a bodybuilding type program on these guys and girls, so that they're all on the same training program with the goal of increasing muscle mass and strength. Uh, also, another thing we're adding is we're going to look at blood chemistry data to see if it affects kidney function, liver function, blood lipids, and things like that. Because as you know, one of the big criticisms that has no data to support it is that eating all that protein is bad for your health. And so we're going to try to address all that. And again, it's, it's one of those kinds of studies where I'm not looking at mechanisms. I'm looking at what happens if you do it. What happens if you tell the average recreational bodybuilder, uh, male or female, that if you're eating three grams of protein uh, per, per uh, uh, kilogram body weight and you lift really hard, will you gain lean body mass? Now, I think according to Stu Phillips, and I'm, I hope I'm not mischaracterizing his work, but I think according to him, as you get better trained, you actually need less protein because you're more efficient at, uh, at utilizing it. Um, so it, this will actually answer a very practical question. Let's say they... They work their butts off. They're eating three grams per kilogram per day. And let's say, and this would be an intriguing result. Let's say half of them got more muscular and half nothing happened. From a purely group average standpoint, statistically, let's say it's not significant. But from a purely pragmatic standpoint, which oddly enough, as a basic science person, I actually am more interested in the pragmatic part of it, mm. half the people got better. So what does that mean? If half the people are improving uh, and half nothing happens, I think you should treat, treat something like this as, as it, it, it exemplifies how individual responses are and that you can't just go by group averages, which, let's face it, almost all scientific data is published as a group average. It's like, well, you know, if you look at the group average, there's no statistically significant difference in, you know, pre and post or between groups, et cetera, et cetera. And I think that's where mistakes, that's where a lot of interesting data may be overlooked in our category. I think... A lot of people now are publishing individual data points so that people could see, oh, wow, that's really rather interesting that individually some people respond really well. Yeah, and as a practitioner, that uh, I want to see that. And I, again, my second catchphrase on this podcast is, uh, you know, we don't, we don't, uh, you know, we publish means, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it, the problem is, is that, that you're working with someone or looking at ourselves and our own situation it's quite possible we're the outlier uh, <laughs> so uh, uh, that you know that's I think it's a shame that oftentimes studies don't include all of the data um, so uh, in fact uh, I mean that's a, a, a nice little segue actually into some other topics that I wanted to get into here and we'll probably wind up back on some of these again before the podcast ends but um, let, let's just quickly talk about supplement studies and some mm -hmm. of the issues and problems that occur with, with these kinds of studies and, and sort of, you know, the balance between what gets published and what doesn't get published. And I know you and I were talking about that off air. Do you want to just sort of bring us up to the listeners up to scratch on, on what I'm talking yeah. about? You know, that's, that's a good good question, and what's interesting, let me put some historical context to this. If you go back a, a decade, a couple of decades ago, the running joke amongst us scientists was that if you want to get something published on a supplement, you got to make sure it doesn't work, because journals like Medicine, Science, and Sports and Exercise, they would jump on stuff like that saying, oh, well, here, there's a study showing this supplement doesn't work, so it's got to be good. And so that was the joke amongst us. It's like, wow. Uh, um, if, if, if a supplement actually worked and there was a lot of data coming out on creatine, 
God forbid any of these journals would publish it. So a lot of times it would end up in obscure journals and things like that. Now, you know, what's interesting about the whole, I guess, supplement category is that um, if you just go back in the last 10 years, I'd say 95% of all data on dietary supplements occurred in, in just the last decade alone. So literally, th there are college students who, if they started, you know, in the last decade, they basically, to them, it's normal that there's all this data on supplements. But if you go back before that, it just didn't exist. I mean, it was just so rare. And uh, I think people are fortunate now that they have really this volume of data that they can really make evidence-based recommendations as it relates to supplements. But, um, but it's sort of as an aside, I want to mention this. I think, um, uh, you know, the whole whether, you know, supplements versus foods and things like that, you know, if there's, you know, if there's a hierarchy, and I've always had the, you know, again, I take a very pragmatic approach to this. When people say, well, what's your stance on foods and supplements? And, and my answer is, it depends what your goals are. I, I liken foods, supplements, and training as, as not hierarchical, but actually something everyone should do depending on their goals. It's sort of like, you know, when people say, I always liken it to this. What's more important for... Um, for for a football player, an American football player, is it is it more important for him to do a speed training or to go lift weights? The answer is it's important to do both. What's more important for the bodybuilding athlete is, is are supplements more important or food? And the answer is it's important to do both. So I don't put a hierarchy, which I think ninety nine percent of people do. They say well, foods first and supplements and whatnot. I, and my my feeling is do everything that helps, and 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 don't worry about the hierarchy. Just become be a, be be practical about it. And to me, I mean, people look at me like, oh, you love supplements. No, I, you know, I don't, you know what, I personally don't care if anyone takes a supplement. My view is, if it helps you, take it. If it doesn't help you, don't take it. What puzzles me, I mean, I give talks to a lot of endurance athletes, and, and I've always, I always want to get a raise of hands from them to see who uses caffeine, you know, pre-race or pre-workout. And I'm always shocked when 50% of the people don't use it. They don't use caffeine at all, not even coffee. And so... The question I pose to them is, don't you want to run faster? And of course, they're like, oh, yeah, I want to run faster. You know, so all these runners, they buy the best shoes. They read up all these training programs online. And they got, you know, all the pretty, all the pretty outfits and whatnot. And I say, don't you realize that if you just consume caffeine, you'd run faster? So why wouldn't you do it? And, you know, people sort of hem and haw. They're like, well, you know, I'm not into supplements. I'm like, but you'll spend $150 on running shoes? I don't get it. So, you know, to me, I'm a... I'm, almost a sheer pragmatist when it comes to this. I'm like, you know what? I guess if you don't want to run faster, don't use caffeine. I mean, the, the data's there. Um, in fact, caffeine and creatine are probably the two supplements that have more data than anything. And, and to me, the question people are asking are the wrong questions. You know, people ask me, you know, why should I take creatine? Why should I take caffeine? And I say, you know what? That's the wrong question. The question should be this. What compelling reason do you have to not take it? If you're an athlete and you want to perform better, ask yourself the question, what's the compelling reason not to take it? And when they, ask them, when they ask it that way, they're like, huh, really, why shouldn't I take it? And then they start approaching it a lot differently. So um, I don't know if that answered your question. Yeah. That was sort of like a little monologue about yeah. supplements. Yeah, no, 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 no. I, th I think it's good. In fact, uh, the last podcast, uh, number nine, was um, with Kamal Patel of examine.com. We got very much into supplement science and... Um, I think, you know, the, the problem with supplements is, in my opinion, I mean, they're not instead ofs, you know, uh, they are supplements, but I'm inclined to agree with you, uh, as long as they're not harmful, um, 
and there's a lot in that which we covered in episode nine. Uh, there isn't necessarily a problem with taking them. I th- I'm a, uh, we're going to have a whole actual podcast uh, coming up soon all about the placebo effect. Um, <laughs> and I think there's some huge things in placebo. In fact, placebos could probably be the best supplements out there. Uh, <laughs> you know, and uh, I think, yeah, you hear food first. I mean, I, I am actually a food first sort of person, but I st- I'm food first and you know, intelligent use of supplements. And I certainly agree with, with, you know, with what you say. I think, I think you made a good point. You know, it's not one or the other, you do both. Um, I think context, my favorite word again, context is obvious. I mean, if you're talking about someone who just does aerobics twice a week, that's, (laughs) that's not really, I mean, we're, you and I are sports nutrition scientists, practitioners, and so on. We're obviously talking about highly active people, athletes, recreational athletes, but the kind of recreational athletes that are obsessed by training and they're in the gym, you know, six days a week. These these people um, might well exceed what they can achieve through a diet, particularly, you know, where there might be some issues with the quality of food that's now available, you know, the processing of foods and damage by cooking and so on. There are some arguments to augment with supplements but of course pragmatism is important here and as we've already discussed with your overfeeding study it's just damn difficult to eat enough protein and if you are looking to gain additional lean muscle mass and I'm not talking about someone who weighs you know they're six foot tall and they weigh uh, 60 kilos I mean and they just want to gain five kilos or two kilos that's probably going to happen just by upping uh, you know eating properly uh, but someone yeah. who weighs 200 pounds and they need to gain another 20 pounds, uh, they're just, they're, there's not, it's not going to be that easy just through food. Um, so they're going to need to support that with supplements. And then obviously, you know, you don't like fish. You hate fish. You're never going to eat fish. Well, the only way you're going to get fish oil is through fish oil supplements. Uh, you know, so I, I, you know, there's a lot in there. And of course, I know some people are listening who are going to have very strong views one way or the other. And, you know, I think as long as you can, like you say, as long as you can rationalize why you're doing what you're doing. And I think you made a good point. If, if you can't explain why you're not taking a supplement, then, you know, you probably should take the supplement if that's going to help you achieve your goals and performance, particularly for those that have fairly high level goals. Uh, As long as you've ruled out, obviously, whether it even works or not and the whole evidence base behind it and so on. But for things like creatine and caffeine and, you know, uh, those kinds of things and protein and and so on. I mean, there's so much evidence behind their efficacy. You're kind of a fool not to use them, um, you know, if, uh, if you know, if, if it's warranted. Um, right, yeah. So let's just go back to the whole study thing, because I, I think people don't always appreciate just how hard it is to run a study. You know, you got your you got your guys that write, you know, uh, do sort of meta analyses and, you know, effectively are just putting together a whole bunch of other studies that other people have done and then sort of resorting them and, you know, coming up with conclusions based on that. But they're not necessarily running the actual studies in the lab themselves. So, so let's just get into that a little bit because I think, you know, I've been doing a little bit of this in my own lab and it's just, you know, it's a fairly new thing for me in my own research um, of actual 
doing proper studies in the lab and you know everything from people dropping out <laughs> which which uh you know like and again in sports science as 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 opposed to clinical studies where there might be thousands of people it's not uncommon for us to have like six people uh in a study and of course once a few people drop out then you you know you've only got a handful of people left so i mean what have your experiences been with that and what um, what are, what are the more common scenarios as a researcher you know, you're likely to come across that that makes doing these studies difficult. And the reason why I'm saying this is before people start critiquing studies that other people have done, if you've never done a study yourself and you haven't, you, you, you can't appreciate how hard it is to do some of these studies. So whatever you find is useful. Yeah, you know, I'm glad you brought this up because, you know, it's um, what I find really amusing is... Um, when a study is published, and like for instance, the high protein one that I did is is a perfect example. People come out of the woodworks saying, "Well, why didn't you do this? Why didn't you measure this? Oh, you didn't get enough subjects, or you didn't do this." And I'm thinking, "Do you have any idea how hard it is to do a study?" Hmm. And 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 I'm, I'm you know I, I love the, you know the, the expression we use here in the United States, you know the Monday Monday morning quarterback, you know the person who. You know, the day after a, a football game, not a soccer, but, you know, American football, day after a football game, people are like, well, they should have done this. They should have done that. And you are absolutely correct. Running a study is ungodly hard. And you touched on one of the most difficult things, keeping subjects who don't drop out. Because to me, that's the hardest thing is getting subjects who won't drop out. Because being a, a, a subject, uh, a volunteer for these studies is difficult, particularly exercise studies where they're doing hard exercise. And um, it's, it's interesting the whole, uh, you know, you mentioned meta-analyses, which, you know, there's been such a growth of meta-analyses in general that there's a part of me that looks at these and I'm thinking, wait a minute, people love meta-analyses, yet it's not even new data. You're culling, well, you're selectively choosing studies that you think fit within a certain criterion and then trying to come up with uh, this sort of overall conclusion where you've mixed apples with oranges with bananas with pineapples and say here's the fruit you know when in fact you know I tell people at meta-analyses there's no new data there nothing there's nothing new it's taking other people's data and trying to come up with a different conclusion so that's one thing the second thing I find interesting is that I call these people movie critics you know um, I ask my students, I say, would you rather be a movie critic or be the guy who makes the movies? And they're like, oh, I want to be the guy that makes the movies. Well, guess what? Movie critics far outnumber people who make movies. People who do studies are far outnumbered by critics of studies. In fact, it's easy to find critics of studies. And, and the ones that are most amusing are the ones that preface their comments with, well, I've never done a study, but <laughs> and I'm thinking, but you should probably not comment if you've never done a study. And and they, you know, people come up with all sorts of things that could have made your study better. I mean, like, for instance, um, just to give you a, a, a concrete example, my high-protein feeding study. People said, well, how did you measure intake? And I said, well, for one week before the study started, they kept a daily food diary. And, you know, we, based on using uh, um, uh, nutrition programs, calculate how much calories, protein, fat, carbs they consume. So we had one-week baseline data. And then... They kept a daily food diary for the entire eight weeks. And people are like, well, well, you know, people lie about that stuff. I'm like, okay, if people lie, well, hopefully they consistently lie from the start to the finish. Um, oh, or do you know people underreport that? I'm like, okay, well, let's say they do. Like, I, hopefully they underreport it from start to finish so it's consistent. And, and then it begs the pragmatic question. 
if you're not using daily food logs, what are you using? Are you are you following them with a video camera and 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 staying at their house and watching what they do? No. Are you going to stick them in jail? Stick them in prison and and personally feed them? No. Are you going to put them in a metabolic ward and they can never go out and make sure all their food is weighed? Uh, no. So they love to criticize, but at the same time they don't give you the solution. It's like, well, you can't use food log data. And here's sort of the ironic part of that. If you look at a lot of these cohort studies or epidemiologic studies that look at the association between like protein intake and cancer or, or whatever, fish oil intake, fish intake, and you know, um, um, cardiovascular disease. I've seen some of these cohort studies or epidemiologic studies that base it on one 24-hour uh, diet recall. One, like one day. In fact, there was one study, high pro this, this was the protein causes cancer study, I believe, an uh, epidemiologic study based on one diet recall, and it represented 18 years. And I'm thinking, wow, I'm getting criticized because I had people do a diet food log every day, yet here's an epidemiologic study that used one 24-hour recall, and that was their that was their way of measuring how people ate over an 18-year period. So I'm thinking, wow, there's a weird disconnect here, really weird disconnect. Um, you know, so sort of the bottom line is, you know, I say I tell people ignore the movie critics because you know what? There's always going to be movie critics, and they don't know how to make movies, but they know how to criticize movies. Be the person who makes the movies. Be the person who does the research because ultimately, ultimately, the only way a, 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 a category of a field of science moves forward is from research. It doesn't move forward because you get a bunch of movie critics. And with the internet being so huge as it is, we got so many movie critics who think they know how to do research when in fact, you know, they're sort of like the person who's telling you how to swim who've never actually jumped in the water. So it's, yeah. I mean, in, in a way it's annoying, but it's also very, yeah. very amusing. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's just a fact of life in many areas. Uh, but of course, you know, as you were saying that, I was thinking, I mean, at the end of the day, I think, like, I mean, you just read newspapers, you know, and of course, it's like that protein is, you know, is worse than smoking and causes cancer study. Yeah. You know, it's a classic example. You've got journalists who have no scientific training. I'm not saying all journalists are this way, of course, but you get a journalist who's uh, got no scientific training. They don't know how to read or critically appraise a paper. They don't know how to differentiate animal studies, petri dish studies, human studies, meta-analyses, and so on. They just don't know what they're looking at. But of course, they become an abstract reader, uh, and they just read that little conclusion at the end. And you yes. know, whatever, you know, sort of twenty-something PhD student who's got no necessarily doesn't have real-world experience or hasn't had sufficient mentoring or coaching or, or, or isn't in a team that uh, has helped them apply this to the real world properly makes a comment in the paper and some of that just becomes fact uh, and of course that's an issue and it's I mean I have this with my students and I know you do with yours and so on and it's just a constant problem where where if it's in the research if it's published then therefore it must be fact and of course there's good science and bad science and um, it's like in the last podcast about supplement studies, you know, once you start ruling out studies that aren't done on humans, uh, you know, for whatever reason, it's a bad study, uh, there's really very few studies left. Um, and yes. that kind of gets scary. 
Um, so, of course, when you think of a meta-analysis or, or those kinds of studies, it's like Chinese whispers at the end of the day. And they all, <laughs> they all have their uses. Uh, but, of course, statistics, you know, uh, it's whoever said, you know, uh, uh, what is it? Statistics. Um, it's statistics, well, there's, statistics, and damn lies or whatever. Yeah, I there's, what the there's, there's, there's lies, damn lies, and statistics. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I got it wrong, <laughs> didn't I? Oh, well. Well, I like the Chinese whispers. I'm not sure yeah. if that's a British thing. But no, I'm, I'm going to coin that one. I'm coining it. There you go. I've <laughs> trademarked it already, so it's mine. So, uh, well, look, uh, we're already out of time here. So I want to thank you for your time, Joey. Um, thank you. I'd love to get you back. Uh, there's so many other topics for us to get into. Uh, I'm really looking forward to coming out to ISSN Austin, Texas. Um, and uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting again um, in the near future. For listeners, obviously, uh, unless you've been living under a rock, um, you should be checking out, uh, you, you should already know about the ISSN and check out the uh, journal of the ISSN. It's, um, you know, it's uh, open access, so you don't have to be a fee-paying subscriber to read some of the good work. Uh, that there is in that journal some great some great um, science is in there so I, I, I recommend that and of course go to uh, the ISSN's ma main website which is uh, that you have various ways of getting there don't you Joey um, yeah the easiest way to remember it is just the uh, T-H-E-I-S-S-N.org great um, yes and uh, again I just want to Make a quick plug. Mm. Uh, next uh, next June 2015, our our 12th annual conference is in Austin, Texas. Wonderful! Yeah, can't wait. Yeehaw! <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, uh, okay, guys, thank you for listening to the 10th episode of the Guru Performance We Do Science uh, podcast with uh, Dr. Joey Antonio, where we talked about various things, including protein overfeeding and uh, some supplement. Sorry, some uh, study issues there. Uh, if you want to learn more about what we're